Good morning, church. Uh, my name's Andrew Maxwell, and uh, I'm part of the care team, and uh, I'm the welcome team as well. And uh, during the week, my wife and I lead a life group on Thursday nights. I'm bringing the Bible reading to you this morning, and it's coming from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 17. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to himself and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. We don't have a, a cool video uh, for this series. Um, but as uh, Corey said uh, earlier, that we are starting a new series on the Gospel of Luke. Or I should say, we're, we're really continuing uh, from last year when we were doing uh, the Gospel of Luke. And we're just picking, off, picking up where we left from. And the part that we're looking at, uh, just a bit of context, is towards the end when Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and he was, he's, he'll be where he will be killed. And as Jesus faces his death, he just starts to clarify to people what it means to have life. So he makes it clear what it means to receive uh, salvation. Hence, we titled the series Into the Kingdom because we're looking at the different aspects of what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, as Christians, we, we tell people that really they only need to believe in the Lord Jesus and they will be saved. Uh, from our Galatian series earlier, the year, earlier in the year as well, we said that salvation is by grace, meaning it's a gift from God, and we only need to have faith in order to receive it. Uh, but I guess the question now is, what does this faith looks, looks like? What kind of faith do we need to have? And that's what we're looking at in the next few weeks. And I hope we can answer some of those questions. Uh, but before we begin today, allow me to start with a word of prayer. Lord, we ask that this will not just be another study or sermon that we hear and not act. So Lord, give us the conviction, the clarity, 
and also the encouragement to do what you say. And Lord, help us to receive your spirit today. This we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, this week, for the very first time, I was rejected in joining a Facebook private group. Uh, you know, in Facebook, uh, you can join different uh, groups uh, and interests. Uh, for example, we have the Tungabi Baptist public page, so everyone can see that. But we also have this exclusive uh, TBC family. Uh, you need to be part of the congregation in order to be part of it, because there's some things that we just don't want to share in, in the outside world. And, and to get in, you really need to submit a request. Uh, there's a few questions that you need to answer, and there's a couple of boxes that you need to tick, and then you can get in. Uh, that's the Facebook private group. And I'm, I'm part of a lot of other different groups. I know a lot of you are as well. I'm in a cat group because we have two cats at home. Uh, I'm part of an uh, in, in plant, indoor plant group because I love a bit of indoor uh, gardening. I'm in a lot of fitness group because I, I love to exercise. Uh, but this week, I was just looking up some, some vegan recipes. Now, I'm not a vegan, but I'm just looking at some healthier alternatives. And so I thought, maybe I'll join a vegan group because I know people always share recipes all the time. Uh, and so I put a request for this Sydney vegan group. I answered the questions, I ticked the boxes, but then I was rejected right away. Now, I don't know why, right? He, uh, what does it take to be in the Sydney vegan exclusive group? Maybe they saw that I was eating some photos of mine that I'm eating meat, some barbecue, and they thought, this is not a real vegan. <laughs> Maybe vegans can sense other genuine vegans. I don't know. Whatever it is, I wasn't good enough for the group. See, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a very, very shocking parable. It's a made-up story. It's a parable, parable between a tax collector and a Pharisee. See, it's shocking because we see the Pharisee is the one getting rejected to join God's special group, God's special family. That the Pharisee is really not good enough. Which makes people think, people think at that time, if someone like him can't get in, then who can? And again, this week we're looking at the question, how good is good enough for God? What is the criteria? What are the boxes that we need to tick? And so let's look at this in three main points. And the three things are that I wanted to show you are these. Why our goodness can deceive us. Secondly, what genuine goodness looks like. And thirdly, how can we be good enough, right? Why our goodness can deceive us, what genuine goodness uh, looks like, and how can we be good enough for God, really. So let's begin. Firstly, why our goodness can deceive us. Let's go, let's go back to the parable. Jesus mentions two people. He says that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one another a tax collector. Now let's just pause here because it's really hard to appreciate the story. See, Jesus didn't give too much details because, about the two people because his audience, his original audience, understood what these people are like. Now, the problem with us reading it is, firstly, we're not in their timeline, so we, we don't know what these people are really like. And secondly, as Christians, we often have this biased view that the Pharisees are always the bad guy in the Gospels, right? But just bear with me and allow me to paint the picture. Uh, remember... The Jews were under the Roman government. 
See, when Rome conquered Israel and other nations, it's a, it, they're, they're a big empire, they didn't kill off their enemies, nor did they try to change their culture. They allowed people to live, and they allowed people to, to keep their culture and their religion and their way of life. Because they knew it will be a lot more beneficial for the empire to keep the peace and the unity of so many different nations. Because in contrast to, remember in the Old Testament when the Assyrians and the Babylonians conquered the land, they killed off the people and they, they enslaved them and they took them back to their land. But see, not the Romans. But what the Romans did is that they imposed a heavy taxation system for the non-Romans, right? So they didn't kill you nor enslave you, but they imposed a heavy tax on you. But to collect these taxes, they needed an inside person. They needed someone who understands the local language, they understands someone who understands the culture, and even knows the local people around. So what they did is that they hired Jewish people to be tax collectors. And the Romans basically allowed tax collectors to determine their own income by charging extra on top of the tax. And so the Romans imposed how much they want, which is a lot, but then the tax collectors added more on top. It's like their surcharge. And so the Romans had this military power to punish those who can't pay off their tax. And also they provided protection for the tax collectors. So you can imagine how much tax collectors are hated at the time because they're considered as traitors and backstabbers and they're incredibly greedy and therefore they're very wealthy. And I'm guessing that they don't care that they're hated because they're, they're earning a lot. For them, it doesn't matter how unethical the job is as long as it's getting paid, they're getting paid well. See, that's the tax collectors. Now, the second person in the parable is a Pharisee. Again, we, we often have a very biased understanding of the Pharisee. But during the time of Jesus, there was this religious group called the Sadducees which is they're, they're, the, they're the temple priest. They're the, the keepers of the temple. They're often in charge of the sacrifices and who, who can enter the temple and so on. But by the time of Jesus, the Sadducees were very, very corrupt. They were known to just be doing it just for the money. So they're not very respected. They're not very admired at all. And then the Pharisees came along because they're the reformed religious movement. They're all about going back to studying the Bible, studying the word of God, making sure that they obey it. They memorized it. They taught it to people. They lived it out, obeying every single detail. And when they are in doubt, they go the extra mile just to make sure that they're obeying God. That's, that's, how, that's how dedicated they are. Sadducees, Again, religious group, they're rich, they're privileged, pious, but very corrupt. Pharisees, they're all about learning, obeying the word of God. And look at how Jesus described the Pharisees in verse 11. He says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. People hear that, there's nothing surprising. Yes, he prays, of course, he's religious, he's a good person. Not just a good citizen, but he goes the extra step of fasting twice a week. He's faithful and generous. He gives a tenth of his money. 
See, the Pharisee would be seen as the pillar of the community. He would be someone who is very, very generous, someone who cared about people, who was in, 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 and was in every way a very respectable person. And so you have the two people, the tax collector, they're considered as the scum of the society. Then there's the Pharisee, he's the role model. In a way, this is the picture that they have. Tax collector, bad. Pharisee, very good. And then in a very shocking twist, Jesus said, the tax collector is the one who will be justified before God. The parable is meant to shock the hearers. It's meant to shock you. How can that be? Because the point is, outside appearance, good works, is not always the best gauge for those who really believe. Just because someone is a Pharisee, or a pastor, or a missionary, or a philanthropist, or, or a biblical so scholar, it doesn't mean that they are a saved Christian. It doesn't mean, it doesn't automatically mean that they are justified. That being a good person or being religiously devout doesn't automatically justify you. It doesn't make you right before God right away. And see, here's the warning. Look at what the Pharisee said. He said, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these criminals. Now, I don't know about you, but have you, have you said anything like that? Thank you, God, I'm not like those people that I hear on the news. Yes, I'm not perfect, but at least, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that person. I mean, I wouldn't do anything like that, Lord. See, quite often, our standards of goodness and morality is us, is ourselves. We think, yes, I'm not perfect, I understand that, but I'm not a bad person either compared to others. We look deep inside that we're, we're better than most, right? We believe there's, there's worse people out there. They're the bad ones. But Jesus can see beyond what we do say and believe. He's looking at the heart. He listens to the prayers. And notice how Jesus kind of hints how silly this prayer is. It says the Pharisee stood up and he basically prayed about himself. He's basically adoring himself. He stands up as a symbol of authority to praise and to adore himself. And he looks down on everybody else. He's confident of his self-righteousness. See, he might be religious. He knows the Bible. He's a teacher. He's highly moral. He's generous. He's obedient. But deep inside, he's prideful and he's greedy. He gives away his money. It says there that 10%. That's, that's a lot. 10% is enough to really make you sacrifice a fair bit. He's generous. Then you have the tax collector. He probably puts an extra 10% on top of the Roman tax. He's greedy. But see, the Pharisee's goodness and generosity is only there so that he can praise himself. And possibly so that other people can praise him. It's so that he can look down on everybody else. He gives only so that he can get more. He gives so that he can control people in some way. And sadly, and I know I've, I've seen it, in churches there can be people who can be absolutely generous. Looks like they're absolutely passionate and sacrificial, but only so that they can use that for their own advantage. 
And it's a big danger for us. It's a big danger for me. I'm up here. I'm looking down on you guys. It's a big danger on you. That we can do things so that we can manipulate things, have things under our control, so that we can look down on everybody else. See? It's so possible to be seen as good and generous, but hold it against people. Hold it against God. See, the real source of radical generosity is not your wallet, it's your heart. That's what God is looking at. We look on the outside, we look on the superficial, but God looks deep inside in our hearts. Well, now you're wondering, so how do we know if we're really being generous? How do we know if we're being generous and good? Our second point, what does genuine goodness look like? Let's move to the second story for a second, and let me read it again. It says that people were bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked him. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. Now, when I was reading this, I was wondering, why is this story here? Now, if I was preaching just on this text, I would have done what I did for communion, which, which is to talk about what it means to have a childlike faith. Or we can talk about what, what we did last week in our dedication of how important it is to lead kids back to Jesus. But we're not going there. Because I think there's a reason why the gospel writer Luke, Luke places the story right here. Look at the attitude of the disciples. That people were bringing their kids to Jesus and the disciples are rejecting the kids. Why? Why are they rejecting the kids? <clears throat> Here's why. Here's what I think. Remember, this comes towards the end of Jesus' ministry. It means they're very, very busy. Jesus is fully booked. And, and, and the disciples are, they know that they're gaining followers. They're building their, their influence uh, strongly. And so more and more people are joining. The ministry is growing. And the disciples really wanted to prioritize what will pay off. They wanted Jesus to invest his time only on things that will really benefit what they're doing. All right? They're looking what marketing will call the target audience. And so they don't have time for kids. The disciples are rejecting the children who are insignificant because children can't do anything in return for their growing movement. There's very poor investment in there. But Jesus tells them to let them in. Now, for someone who's like Jesus to spend his time on children is really extravagant. In other words, he's, he's being absolutely generous. That, that he's getting nothing out of it, but he's willing to give his time and his energy for them. See... He's showing what it means to be radically good and generous. It means to live a life of giving instead of a life of taking. It means to, to, to do something even if it no way, if it, even if it doesn't benefit you at all. It means sacrificing your time and, you, and your resources even if you don't get recognized for it. See, the Pharisees is generous with his money, his tithing, but only so that he can look down on others. Only so that he can get something for himself. And here's Jesus. He's basically wasting his energy and time on people that won't be doing anything in return. He's inviting kids, people to him, and the disciples know that they have very little benefits from that. That they know that they won't get votes from kids. 
But see, to give and not get anything in return, not even self-affirmation, is what real goodness and generosity looks like. I think we all know that to, to love someone, to sacrifice yourself and not get anything in return is absolutely hard and devastating. To be good, to be generous, to love and to care, and yet not get anything in, not get anything in return is absolutely hard to sustain. And that is the standard of goodness here, to have a pure heart, to have pure intentions, to live a life of self-giving without asking anything in return. And I think this is why a lot of times it's just so much easier just to sign a check, just to give money and say, yes, look, I've done my part. It's easy to justify our goodness like the Pharisee and say, hey, at least I'm not like those criminals. But Jesus says genuine goodness comes from within. It's the condition of your heart. It's from having pure intentions. It's to do something for someone without expecting anything in return. And we know, we know that people are messy. We know that people are hard. It's a lot harder to, to be emotionally giving. It's hard to be hospitable and generous and to open our homes and our lives to someone. It's hard to be generous with forgiveness because it's a lot easier to hold grudges and make us feel, it makes us feel more in control, that we're better than someone else. But see, the standard for goodness and generosity is not how much you give, but why you do it. It's the heart. It's your intentions. And this is why, again, even in the way we do church, it's so much easier to do church without getting involved in other people's lives. Because people are messy. People are hard. Ministry will be a lot easier if there's no one here. We're happy to come and sit and listen, but we don't want to get involved in the messiness of people's lives. We're happy to give from a distance, but we don't want to get close because it will be emotionally taxing. It will be time consuming. It means that we really, really have to care. And often we just don't have it in us. I think even in the way uh, we do evangelism, we can run outreach events and, and turn people into to personal projects of our own and feel good about ourselves instead of, of genuinely really loving and caring for people. We only want them so that we can have a good Christian story to tell one day. Something to boast about ourselves or about our church. See, it's hard to be good because to do it well means we have, it means that you have a lot of love to give. And most of the time, we only have enough love for ourselves. So how is this possible? How can we be genuinely good? Here's our third point. Let's go back to the, to the parable and look at verses 13 to 14. Let me read it. But a tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now, you already know that the word justified means to be approved legally, to be legally accepted, to be considered innocent, or to, to be righteous, to be considered righteous. The tax collector 
The hated, greedy backstabber goes home, it says, approved, justified before God, while the Pharisee, role model of the community, goes home and he's not right with God. And see, throughout the Gospels, we see the good people, like the Pharisee, not getting in, not being able, not being justified while the tax collectors are getting in. Now, what's the message here? See, the gospel, the good news, is really for two kinds of people. And I think we have a good set of two kinds of people normally in, in, in Western Sydney. Firstly, it's for people who are like the tax collectors, and they know it, that they, people who are blatantly selfish, people who don't care what, that, what they're doing is something wrong. People who are unashamedly living for themselves and trample on other people in order to get there. See? But the other type are good, law-abiding, church-going, charity-giving people like the Pharisee. And the Gospels are pointing out that both types of people are basically rejecting God. Both types can be trying to be their own God and be their own Savior. See, on one side, bad people are saying to God, I don't care who you are. I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to live for myself. I don't want to know you. Leave me alone, God. That's the tax collector, right? But on the other side, the good people can also be saying, hey, I've been really, really good. I've been completely generous. I've been religious. I've been going to church regularly. Now you owe me, God. I've done what you want. Now do what I want. See, the bad people, they're openly rejecting God. They hate God. The good people, it looks like they love God, but they're secretly using God. See, you might go to church, serve, give, pray, do all the things that you need to do, but all of it can be a facade just to save yourself, to honor yourself so that you can be your own savior, so that you can look down on other people and you're, you're using your good works to control God or even control other people. And in Matthew 21, Jesus tells this to the religious Pharisee. He said, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now Jesus is not saying that it's okay to be a tax collector or a prostitute, nor is he saying that Pharisees, that there's no hope for them. Here's the point, that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, that at least they know that what they're doing is wrong and they're, they're, they're repentant. But the Pharisees, that they have been told that they too are in the wrong, but they won't admit it. See, if you're sick and, if, and you refuse to admit that you're sick, right, and you die of it, what killed you? The sickness? Well, the solution is right in front of you, right? It was the denial that killed you. It was the refusal to get help that killed you. And that is why in Jesus, Jesus said in verse 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Meaning what gets you into the kingdom is not good works, but it's first to admit that you're not good enough, that even your good works are done for the wrong intentions. Or as Isaiah 64 says, all our righteous acts are nothing but filthy rags. Meaning that the way we try to clean ourselves up because we know that we're wrong, that even that, the very rag that we use is dirty. Therefore, there's no point. That's the first step, humility. 
Admit that you're wrong. Repentance. Turn away from your sins. But that's not all, because humility does, alone doesn't get you salvation. There's something else that you need. Look again at the prayer. The tax collector prayed, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, you can't see it, but the word mercy here is not the typical word for mercy. The usual Greek word for mercy is the Greek word elios, which if you drop down in verse 38, if you have your Bibles with you, you can see that the blind man cries out to Jesus and he said, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on me, Elios. Have mercy, have compassion on me. It's to have sympathy on me, have co uh, to feel sorry for. But see, that's not the word. It's not the usual word the tax collector uses. He uses a very unusual word, which is a unique word, and it's only used one other time in the New Testament. And I'll show you in a second where, where you can find it. But it's the word, hilasterion, which means to appease. It means to propitiate or to pay for. And he's not saying, Lord, have sympathy, have compassion in me. He's saying, I need someone to pay for all the things that I've done. I need someone to appease, to have mercy on what I deserve. The only other place in the New Testament where you can find this word is in Hebrews 2.17, which it says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, that he might make atonement. It's the same word. For the sins of the people. That Jesus Christ became man in every way so that he can be the very source of mercy, the very source of goodness, the very source of atonement to pay for the sins of the people. And see, what the tax collector is really saying and praying, he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I need atonement. I need someone to pay for me. I don't just need sympathy, but I need the goodness of God. He's asking God to pay for him. It's the uh, NRL finals tonight. Battle of the West, Para versus Penrith. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to the stadium to watch the game... What will get you in? Sympathy? Can you say that, look, I've been a big fan. I, I, I know I don't have a ticket, like, but you know, I love the game. Look how much I've done for the team. No, you can't get in with that. What gets you in is a ticket. And all the tickets right now are sold out. It means to get in, you need someone to sacrifice their seat for you. That's the only way to get in. You know what Jesus has done? He lived the good life that you cannot live, and he took the death that you needed to die. Why? So that his righteousness can be in us, and our sinfulness can be pulled out and be paid on the cross. It's an exchange. See, that's what the, the tax collector, that's what justifies the tax collector, the atonement that Jesus paid for his sins. Which means if you have the righteousness of God in you, it means that you have a lot of love to give. That if you have the goodness and the perfection of Jesus Christ in you, it means that you don't have to try to make yourself look good or good enough before God, that you are already accepted, that you are already loved and accepted by God himself. And because of that, you can now love people 
that you can give sacrificially, you can open up your life and enter people's mess, and not just to make yourself feel good, but you already feel good because God has given his life in you. If you truly realize what God has done in your life, it will empower you to be radically self-giving. And that's what we always continue to strive for. So church, let's continue to understand what it means to have Christ living in us and what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we adore you, we praise you, we thank you for all what you have done for us. And Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the atonement. Thank you for giving us what we do not deserve. But Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will open our eyes, that you will help us to truly repent that you will help us to realize how much that our goodness are nothing but filthy rags. So Lord, help us to repent, but also to trust and believe in what you have done for us. This we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.